Boy, we are, we are really, honestly, we are at the end of this series. I know, it, it feels a little to me like the, um, the endings of the first Lord of the Rings movie. You know what I'm saying? Where it takes like 45 minutes to, to end the film. You're kind of saying, enough already, I got it. So hopefully you're not there yet where you're saying, enough already, I've got it. But uh, I promise you, Lord willing, um, we're going to finish this morning. Um, you know, throughout all my years here, God has given me opportunity to preach um, many, many, many Sundays and, and on a variety of topics and, and books and so forth. And as you think back over different series, I, I just have to tell you that I, from, from, from my point of view, this series, I think, has been one of the, the most uh, important uh, series that, that we have brought to this church here in a very long time. So um, I've heard from some of you that it's been helpful in your life to think about things, and, and so those who, who have expressed that thank you, I'm sure that you speak for many others who just, you know, for whatever reasons, uh, don't vocalize that. But, and I'm not looking for everybody to say, oh, wow, that was great. But, but just uh, to, to recognize that for me personally, and I think for this body, just talking about living as a minority community um, in a hostile world is a reality that the church at large, uh, certainly in America, does not spend enough time thinking about or talking about. So we are here at the end, and uh, Christ is our hope. It's the final message. It's the second part of that message. And um, well, maybe I'll just say this too as we get into it. And uh, open your Bibles to Second Timothy. That's where we are, Second Timothy chapter 2. I will say this, uh, beginning next week, so next week, the following week, and then Christmas Day itself will be a three-part message entitled The Promise. And uh, what we're going to do is trace uh, the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelation. So we are going to trace it through the entire Bible in three weeks. I know you don't think that's possible, but it is possible. And I know it's possible because I did it once years ago, so I already have a manuscript, so I know that it's possible. And I did it before in three weeks, so I can do it again. But that is the plan, is to begin in Genesis and trace this promise. It begins as a seed promise, of course, in Genesis 3, and how it, it fills out and develops, and, and, and how the nation longs and looks for the coming one. And we will finish Christmas Day, and I'm going to do this, by the way, um, like a story. I'm basically going to tell a story. Uh, in eight chapters. And uh, the eighth chapter will be Christmas Day, and it will be entitled The Return of the King. So that's what uh, we've got. If, uh, if you have friends or family members that you've been uh, wanting to invite or something or have been asking you questions what the Bible is all about, this would be a wonderful opportunity in a, in a matter of a few weeks to, to be able to see the great sweeping theme of the Scriptures from beginning to end. So we are here in 2 Timothy, Paul's final letter recorded for us and bound in the canon of Scripture to his his son in the faith, Timothy. Paul finds himself here in the Mamertine dungeon in Rome. He is at the end of his life, sometime around probably 80, 67, 68. He is facing the executioner's sword. He won't live long. He knows that. 
And he is calling for uh, Timothy to come to him, if, he, if he, at all possible for him to come. And, and he wants to see Timothy one last time. He writes to him here, and I think he writes to him for many reasons, but not the least of which is in case Timothy can't get there. And the theme that, uh, that really prevails or pervades within this, this uh, last letter here is the theme of suffering. It's about uh, suffering, really. You notice in, uh, in verse 12 of chapter 1, Paul says there, he says, For this reason I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Chapter 2 Verse 3, he says, uh, Timothy, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Over in chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So the the theme of suffering for the gospel, of being persecuted for the gospel, of, of the need to stand firm in the face of hostility is a theme that is running through this entire letter. And so it's appropriate, I think, for us to, to, to go to this book, and in particular here, verses 8 through 13 of chapter 2, as, the, as the, the basis of our final message in our series about living as a minority community in a hostile world. And that is that our, that our hope is in Christ. Christ is our hope. It is, it is Christ who is the anchor of our soul. It is He, who He is, what He has done, and what He will do, that is, it is what enables us to stay in the saddle, to, to stand firm. And as we look here, and we started it last time, and I'll review just quickly to catch us up, and then we'll, we'll move forward here. In verses 8 through 13, uh, the structure that I had for you last time is I called it a three-point harness, a three-point harness that will enable us to stand firm when everything around us is wobbling. And I, and I chose that, that, that illustration, that picture, that metaphor of a three-point harness, and I, was, and I didn't get to say it last time. I got distracted. So I'm going to say it this time is I was thinking at the time about a car seat, about a car seat. You know, when you, when you, uh, when you have a baby, you, you go to the hospital and you and you got to come home, and, and you bring that baby home in a car seat, and, and that baby is all strapped in in this sort of three-point harness. You know, they're, they're buckled in every which way but loose. And, uh, the, and the purpose of all of that, of course, is because in case there were ever uh, an accident, in case there were ever a crash or a crack-up, then it's the harness that will hold that child in place and, and preserve that young and vulnerable one in the face of something devastating. And so, in just thinking about uh, where this world is headed, and, uh, and as we've spoken uh, many times about the coming storms that are, that are going to roll over the church of Jesus Christ, we need a three-point harness. We need to be firmly bolted in. And so, Christ is our hope. He is that three-point harness that that holds us in. And so we begin here, and let me read it, and, and then we'll begin to pull it apart again a little bit. But uh, beginning in verse 8, he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. 
It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So we said that Paul has for us here a three-point harness. A three-point harness. And the, and the first attachment point is in, is in uh, verse 8. In, uh, and we're calling it, uh, it is remember the gospel. That's the attachment point. Remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. And Paul wants to help Timothy here to stand firm and, and to be willing to suffer the hardship, right? Verse 3 of this same chapter, suffer hardship with me, Timothy. And so in order for Timothy to be able to stand firm, to be able to suffer the hardship, he needs to remember something. And what he needs to remember is the gospel. That's what Paul says, verse 8, remember, Timothy, that's a command. Timothy, there's something you have to remember. You need to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. Or in other words, according to, to the way I preach the gospel. This is the content of the gospel. And there are two foundational truths that Paul brings out here in this verse that, that summarize the gospel, that scoop up the gospel, that gather up the gospel together. And really, it's both in the, in the way he, he refers to it here. Remember, Jesus Christ. Now, Paul typically would say either the Lord Jesus Christ or he would most frequently say Christ Jesus. So this is a little unusual for him to remember Jesus Christ. That is, the, the, he puts the, the humanity, as it were, the, Jesus the man, and then Christ the Messiah, Christ his, his title, uh, in that form. And then he, he speaks of it here as risen from the dead and descendant of David. So you see in the way he refers to him and then what he says following, the gospel scooped up. And it's these two foundational truths. The first one being that Jesus has conquered death. Remember Jesus risen from the dead. That is, he is the risen one. He is the one who lives forevermore. He is the one who has conquered death, who has, who has victory over man's greatest enemy, death. Jesus has conquered death. And in fact, back in 1 uh, Corinthians, uh, so if you can just flip back there to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we see the same thing when Paul talks about the gospel. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verses 3 and 4, where Paul reminds the Corinthians there. He says in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So you see the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is the gospel. That is the good news. That is what Paul and the others were, were uh, committed to be witnesses to. They were to go around the world and say, we have seen the one who has conquered death, the one who lives forevermore, the one who is the resurrected one. Jesus has conquered death. Secondly, Christ 
or Messiah, where Paul says here, descendant of David. And there the focus is upon the promise to David. We saw it last time in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, the promise to David of a, of a greater son, of a future son who would sit on his throne and would rule the nations. And so Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the coming one. He is the greater son of David. He is the Lord of all. And so Paul says, that is, in a nutshell, my gospel. That is my message. Jesus is the living one. He is the greater son of David. He is the coming king. You can see it again. Now flip with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and you can, you can find it here as well. Just as Paul begins uh, Romans, you know, that's his, his great uh, treatise, his, his, his most comprehensive uh, declaration and explanation of his gospel, where he says, beginning in verse 1, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And then here it is. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. That is his gospel. He is the living one, the great Davidic king. And Paul says that we, or Timothy first, Timothy, you need to remember this. And, and by remembering this, you will be able to stand firm. And by extension, beloved, we too. We too. That's how we stand firm. That's how we stand firm, is to remember this reality. I mean, think about it. What is the worst thing that can happen to us? Fear not him who can kill the what? The body. Fear him who, after killing the body, casts body and soul into hell. Right? As Martin Luther would say, right? What, you know, what is the worst thing that can happen is death. But because Jesus has conquered death, because Jesus is the living one, and because Jesus shares that life with us, We don't have to fear death. And if we don't have to fear death, then there's nothing else under it that we have to fear. We need to remember that gospel. And Paul says that it it is this gospel, verse 9, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. And we looked at that last time. The, the, the language there is, is only used elsewhere in the New Testament in Luke 23 to speak of the two who were crucified either side of Jesus Christ. Violent criminals, brigands, those who deserve to be executed. And, and Paul is being treated as if he is that kind of person. He, is, he has been placed in a, in a dungeon and he is awaiting his own execution Because of this gospel of Jesus Christ. Timothy, stand firm. I'm standing firm. You stand firm. Remember the gospel. Secondly, second harness point is in the rest of verse 9 and verse 10. And it's to rely on the word. To rely on the word. 
He says, I suffer imprisonment, Timothy is a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. (laughs) Wow. The word of God is not imprisoned, Timothy. Listen, it doesn't matter what they do to me. It doesn't matter what they'll do to you. And ultimately, beloved, it doesn't matter what happens to us. The word of God is not imprisoned. They can silence me. They could silence you. They cannot silence God. God speaks. He spoke this universe into existence. His word cannot be silenced. It cannot be imprisoned. It cannot be shut up. It accomplishes that which he sends it forth for. It is always accomplishing something every single time. Whenever the scriptures are read, whenever the word of God is proclaimed, whenever it is preached, God is at work. He is at work right now. He is at work in me. He is at work in you. He cannot be silenced. And so remember that reality. Remember that reality that that the word of God cannot be silenced. And that takes us to our third harness point. Our third harness point, and this is where we'll slow down. Our third harness point is to reflect upon reality. To reflect upon reality. We need to remember the gospel We need to rely on the word, and we need to reflect upon reality. Paul says here, For this reason I endure all things, right? For the sake of those who are chosen, that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, with it and with it eternal glory. And then he says, it's a trustworthy statement. There's a a transition that's happening here. He, he, is, he is moving from the example of endurance, his own endurance, to, to an exhortation here to endure. He is, he is reminding Timothy of something here. Look at it in verse 11. He said, it's a trustworthy statement, Timothy. This is, this is something you can, you can build on. You can bank on this, Timothy. It is a trustworthy statement. That's an interesting expression, uh, that the Apostle Paul uses, it appears five times in these pastoral epistles. So 1 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy, and Titus, five times we have this expression, it is a trustworthy statement. It's a way to set it apart. It's a, it's a way to, to remind them and us of something that is, that is really significant. Really, really significant. Something that we, that we never can lose sight of. Something that we must really think about. We need to reflect on. So just kind of get the, the flavor of that here. Just go over to 1 Timothy chapter 15. Or excuse me, yeah, chapter 15. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. Where's the first place Paul uses this trustworthy statement? This, this clue. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he goes on to say, among whom I am foremost of all. This is a trustworthy statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Don't ever lose sight of that reality. Don't ever, ever lose sight of that reality. Chapter 3, verse 1. 
He gives it to us again. He says there, Timothy, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Timothy, don't lose sight of this reality that, that aspiring to, to give leadership to the hard work of, of the overseer among the people of God is a, is a good thing. It is a good thing, Timothy. Don't lose sight of that reality. Chapter 4 and verse 9. He says that it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And, and what he is talking about is what goes before that. It's a trustworthy statement where he says there in, in verse 7 and 8, where he's talking about bodily discipline and, and uh, the discipline for godliness. And, he, and what he says is it's a trustworthy statement, Timothy, that godly discipline is something you need to never lose sight of. You need to hang on to. It is, it is valuable above all other things to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, the era of the end of uh, verse 7 there. So it's a trustworthy statement. There is great, great value in godly discipline. We have it here in 2 Timothy 2.11. We'll get back to that. And the other place it appears is over in Titus chapter 3 and verse 8, where he says it's a trustworthy statement. Concerning these things, I want to speak to you confidently so that those who believe God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Well, we're talking about a trustworthy statement here. I believe he's referring back to that which goes before where he says in verse 5 that God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It is a trustworthy statement, Timothy, or Titus rather, that, uh, that the regeneration comes by the work of the Spirit of God. It is not something that we do ourselves. It is something that God does in us, and it brings us the hope of eternal life. Hang on to that. Hang on to that reality. So back here into our text for this morning. It is a trustworthy statement. And then Paul gives us this, these verses 11, 12, and 13, this little section here that is, um, is arranged in an interesting way. It's, it's, um, it's a series of four couplets. And, and they're kind of rhythmic in nature. They're kind of, and they're parallel in, in structure. Many, many think that this uh, actually is part of perhaps an early church hymn. Or, or maybe, maybe a catechism that people would memorize. It, it's set up to be memorized. It, it's set up to, in, in such a way that it is easy to, to remember and recall. Again, many think that perhaps this is Paul's own creation. Perhaps a, perhaps a way that he would, he would disciple early believers in, in his church planting activities. Now, as I say, uh, grammatically here, we have, we have four couplets, and, and the way they're, they're put together is such that the, that the first 
clause of the couplet is what's called a first-class conditional statement. And what that just means is, is that it's assumed to be true. It's assumed to be true. The first part of each couplet is assumed to be true, and then there is a result. If this is true, this is the result. And each result is expressed in terms of Christ. Each outcome is expressed in terms of Christ. The first two couplets are positive in nature. The third is negative, and the fourth is, I believe, also positive and is designed to offer a a glimmer of hope to those who have fallen. Okay, so it's, it's set up in such a way to memorize it. It's a trustworthy statement. It's something that, that we ought to have. We ought to, it's a framework that we ought to have. And so let's just kind of break those four couplets down, okay? Let's break them down. So the first couplet, I'm calling the certainty of victory. The first couplet is the certainty of victory. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. Remember, first-class conditional statement, the first part of the couplet is assumed to be true. It's assumed that we have died with him. All right? So it's not if, well, maybe you have, maybe we haven't. No, we've died with him. Because we have died with him, we will also live with him. What Paul's talking about here is is what I call the uh, the death-life paradigm. The death-life paradigm. The language itself is really identical to what Paul uses over in Romans chapter 6. And so I'm going I'm to turn you there to Romans chapter 6 where you can see it and, and where Paul draws it out in a greater explanation. He's not really explaining it here. Remember, this is designed to be memorable. This is designed to hang on to. This is, a, this is part of either a hymn or a catechism or, or something like that. So he's not, he's not filling it full of the explanations. He's just stating the reality. Stating the reality. If we have died with him, we will reign with him. So here in Romans chapter 6, and uh, beginning in verse 8, we see, that, we see really the identical language, but, there, but here we see it drawn out in a greater explanation. He says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. You see the, the kind of the identical expression. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let your eye go up a little bit to verse 4, where Paul says there, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead... Through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. What's he talking about? What he is talking about is the union that happens when one comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are placed in this vital union with Christ. Such that his death becomes their death and his resurrection becomes their resurrection. They are now joined with him. They have died with him to sin 
That is to their, to their old life, to their identification with Adam. In chapter 5 of Romans, he talks about that you were in Adam. There in Adam, you are dead in your trespasses and sin. That, that sin controls you. You are a slave to it. You are dead. But when you, are, when you are united with the living one, you move to this new realm where he lives, you live. We can see it in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul speaks of it there. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Where Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. In other words, when Christ died on that cross, God counted you dead too. When he died, you died. And when he rose from the dead, You rose from the dead. Sin power over you was broken. You are now a new creation, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. You are a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, all has become new. You are now united to the living one. And because he has died... And we have died with him. Therefore, we live with him. We live with him. And that's Paul's point in in the Romans 6 there, in verses 8 through 11, is that because of this reality, that we now have the power to say no to sin. Sin no longer dominates us. Sin no longer controls us. We are no longer its captive. We are no longer its captive. We have a certainty of victory. Not just someday. Today. Today. Beloved, that is incredibly, incredibly powerful Comforting, encouraging, admonishing, and exhorting. It is the foundation of what it means to be united to Christ, to have new life in Christ. And Paul's saying, listen, it's a trustworthy statement. Don't ever forget. And we baptize, right? We baptize. Why? Because it's the symbol that has been given to us, this this physical symbol that portrays this reality, right? You are are buried with Christ in death, and you are raised to walk with him in newness of life. There's no power in the water. It is the sign, it is the symbol, it it is the enduring illustration of this incredible spiritual reality. That you are new in Jesus Christ. That's the first certainty. Back to 2 Timothy. That's the first certainty. The second certainty is the certainty of reward. The certainty of reward. 
If we endure, and it's assumed we will, if we endure, we will also reign with him. There is a certainty of reward. Now, to endure means to, to, to hold your ground. To hold your ground. To, to hang on. To, 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 to stand firm. In context here, it's, it's got to be in the times of the trouble and the affliction that, that Paul is speaking about in this entire book, right? In, in, where he talks about endure hardship. It's about hardship. It's about hanging tough in the face of hardship, in the face of opposition. Particularly the hardship and opposition brought upon by our commitment to Jesus Christ. And what Paul is reminding the, the, the believers there, Timothy and the believers, and, and us too, I think is this, that uh, presently it doesn't look like we're children of a king, does it? I mean, if you're a son of a king, then, uh, then why are we being persecuted? Why, is, why, why are we considered, you know, the, the lowest of the low, as it were? And Paul is, is reminding Timothy of something. If we endure, we will also reign with him. That is, that is in due time, when Christ is revealed... In all his glory, we will be revealed with him. That's the message in Romans chapter 8. Sit at my right hand, Psalm 110 verse 1, until I make your enemies what? A footstool for your feet, Christ, my son. And so, beloved, in Christ, in union with Christ, as we endure, we have the certainty of knowing that we will reign with him someday. Someday. Again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and, and verse 2, I won't turn you there, but, but he speaks to the Corinthians there and he says, you know, we're going to judge the angels. We're going to judge the angels. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28, when the disciples say to him, you know, we've given up everything to follow you, you know, what, what's for us? And he says, in the regeneration, interesting choice of terms, in the regeneration, that is in the coming kingdom when the, when the world becomes regenerated because the king is now on his throne here on earth, the great Davidic king, you too will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And he goes on to say, listen, if you, give up, if you give up your wife and your children or your families or your fortunes or whatever, you've given up really in the grand scheme of things nothing compared to what is coming compared to what is coming. Now, why is it important for us to remember the certainty of reward? The answer is pretty simple, isn't it? Because life is hard. And it it appears like the wicked are prospering. And it appears like they're going to win, that they're winning. And Paul says, don't fall prey to that. Don't fall prey to that. Endure, and you will reign. The third is the certainty of destruction. This one gets dark. If we deny him, verse 12, he also will deny us. This is a hard statement. 
This is a hard, hard statement. This speaks about the status of those who turn their backs on Christ. I mean, in context here, look at chapter 1, verse 15, where Paul says, You are aware of the fact that all who were in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Listen, when Paul says uh, they've turned away from me, it, this, he's not speaking like, you know, they were fickle friends. You know, now I'm lonely and I'm kind of, you know, bummed out. To turn from the Apostle Paul is to turn from Jesus Christ. That's exactly John's message in, in, uh, in the uh, 1 John. Right? You have fellow, we have fellowship with the Father. As you have fellowship with us, you have fellowship with the Father. Your fellowship with the Father comes through our word. And so to turn from Paul is to turn from Christ. And he says, if we deny him, and I think in the context here, we have have to think about verbal denial, behavioral denial, something, you know, in, in context, again, to avoid suffering. To avoid suffering. He will also deny us. Beloved, he's speaking about the certainty of judgment. On apostasy. Those who turn away. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them. If anyone wishes to come after me. He must deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake. And the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world. And forfeit his soul. For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I mean, this this is stark. This 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 is something we would do well to ponder. We would do well to ponder. If we deny Christ, he also will deny us. Now, I can almost see the thoughts rolling through some of your heads. What about Peter? What about Peter? Forget about Peter. Forget about Peter. And the reason I want you to forget about Peter is because there is, a, there is something about the human nature, that when we hear a, a really strong prohibition, the first thing we do is try to think of an exception. We all have an inner defense attorney on retainer that is exceedingly active, looking for loopholes. Get me off this. Get me out of here. And beloved, I think we do ourselves a disservice. I I, I think we lose the the importance, the power of a warning like this. Don't worry about Peter. Worry about yourself. 
worry about yourself. Listen, if you had died with him, you will live with him. You are alive. If you endure, you will reign. Hang on to that. And thus, you will not deny him. And you don't have to worry. But if we do deny him, he will deny us. The certainty of destruction. And then we are left with the fourth, the certainty of restoration. The certainty of restoration. This one breaks the the formula, as it were. I mean, in each of these, right? If we've died, we'll live. If we endure, we'll reign. If we deny, he'll deny. And then, and then this fourth one, if we're faithless, Paul can't bring himself to say that he is faithless. Because God is never faithless. So it, so it breaks it up. He, he, he comes at it in a different way. And, it, and it's, all, it's unexpected, really, I mean, just in terms of the grammatical structure. Because what he says here, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That is, in other words, a case of our unfaithfulness is met by the faithfulness of Christ. That's why it is the certainty of, of hope and resurrection here. I mean, if, if he left us off in, in, uh, just at the end of verse 12, we would, we would be left in this dark place. But he comes back. And he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Now, let me just acknowledge a, a reality here, that there are some Bible teachers who believe that, that what Paul is talking about is the, is the certainty of judgment, meaning if we're faithless, he is, he is going to be faithful to judge us. But I don't, I don't think at all that's what he is talking about. He is, he is not talking about punishment here. He's not talking about judgment here. In fact, when, when the faithfulness of God is used in the Scriptures, it, it speaks in a, in a positive sense, in a reassuring sense. It's, it's never given to us in a threatening sense. So the faithfulness of God is not something to run from, it's something to run to. So what is he talking about here? I think what he is talking about is, is not permanent defection, which is, I think, what's being addressed at the end of verse 12, but instead he is talking about here the, the passing acts of unfaithfulness that every single believer experiences from time to time. And what he is saying here is that, that when we are faithless, when we experience one of those moments, Christ is faithful, he will never let us go. He will never let us go. He is, he is faithful to his people. You see it in John chapter 10. John 10 Verse 27 and following, where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. For my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. 
Or in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, right? There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Beloved, how comforting it is. How comforting it is in in the face of incredible hardship to know that if we slip into unfaithfulness, if in that moment we flinch, for whatever, whatever the reasons, however it happens, that God is still faithful to His promise to us. He is still faithful to His promise to us. Beloved, this is designed to bring us back to the Savior of our souls. To, to return to the shepherd. Why is this true? Let me end of the verse. For he cannot deny himself. It is grounded in his own character. His own character. When we are, when we fall, we are, we are, we are insane. Can I say that? We, we, are, we are insane in that moment because we have lost touch with reality. Because we have lost touch in that moment with the one who is real. And we're, we're in the moment when we, when we fail and fall, and, and we all fail and fall, but in that moment in time, we are living as if God doesn't exist. That's insane. We're out of our minds. But let this truth break through our insanity. And let it, let it break the grip of sin on our heart in that moment. And let it woo us back to Christ. Let it woo us back to Christ. If I could summarize these four couplets, I'd do it this way. Here they are. You want to memorize something? I mean, you can memorize this. It's pretty short. But you want to memorize something shorter? <laughs> Here it is. Sin does not rule me. First couplet. Sin does not rule me. Secondly, endurance is rewarded. Sin does not rule me. Endurance is rewarded. Third, deception or defection is deadly. Defection is deadly. Sin does not rule me. Endurance is rewarded. Defection is deadly. And, and fourth, Christ is faithful forever. Hang on to these three, or these four things. Hang on to these. And we can live as a minority community in a hostile world. Let's pray. Father, May the truth of your word be the comfort of our hearts this morning. Restore, renew, rekindle our faith. Draw us, draw us ever closer in Christ Jesus, your Son. Amen and amen.